the Bible describes two ways to live, two very different ways to live with two very different outcomes, two very different consequences. One way to live is the way of sin and foolishness. The consequences of this way of life is loss and ruin. Another way to live, a better way to live, is the way of faithfulness and grace. And the consequence of this way of living is life and blessing. Two ways to live. Which way will it be for you and for me? Uh, to my young friends who were privileged to have in the congregation this morning, this decision will always be before you. Two ways to live, two decisions to make, sinful ones or faithful ones, foolish decisions or wise decisions. They're going to confront you in your school, in your friendships, your relationships, in your activities, in your sports, in your job one day. There's two ways to live, the way of sin, the way of grace. Walking in sin leads to loss, but walking in grace leads to blessing. It is this truth that confronts us as we continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis. And so let's turn together to the book of Genesis chapter 9. The book of Genesis chapter 9 in the Bibles on your seats. You can find Genesis chapter 9 on page 7. Page 7. If you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we love to give free Bibles away. So in the lobby, there are three bookshelves. The one closest to the men's restroom, uh, you can grab a black hardback Bible there. We love to give free Bibles away. Please take one if you need it or if a friend needs it, give that to him or to her as a gift. Genesis 9, I'll read verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. It's an interesting passage, some oddities going on here. Here's the narrative flow in Genesis 9, 18 through 29. There are acts of sin followed by an act of grace 
followed by consequences that result. Two acts of sin, followed by one act of grace, followed by the consequences that result. Sin, grace, consequences. Sin, grace, consequences. That's the progression. The take-home truth of this sermon is walking in sin leads to loss. The walking in grace leads to blessing. Walking in sin leads to loss, but walking in grace leads to blessing. The first two verses in this passage bring the flood account to a close and also prepare us for what's next in Genesis, namely what's next in Genesis 10, the table of nations and the repopulation of the world, and then Genesis 11, the tower of Babel, how one language is spread out dispersed into many languages, many peoples going about the earth. So what we see here is sort of this hinge passage. It concludes the flood narrative, but then paves the way for what's next in the population and the dispersion of people groups. So we read verses 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So Noah's family has just emerged from the waters of God's judgment. And then through Noah's family, the whole earth would be repopulated. And we'll see more about this in the coming weeks as we look at the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 and then the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Stay tuned for that. We'll unpack those passages further. But this is kind of set up for what is to come. Now notice you also see here mention of Noah's son Ham being the father of Canaan. This is key in this passage. And if you just scan down the rest of the verses, verses 18 through 29, notice how many times you see Canaan's name mentioned. But Canaan's not in the passage. His father Ham is. There's an emphasis on Canaan here. Why? Because, friends, the unrighteousness of Cain's father, Ham, that is on display here in this passage presently, serves to anticipate the unrighteousness and the wickedness of the Canaanites that will be throughout the rest of the Old Testament. A dominant theme is the unrighteousness of the Canaanites, the people who previously lived in the promised land before Joshua and the Israelites are given the power and the permission to go in and take the land. Who do they ultimately overtake in the land? The Canaanites. All these ites names, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Mighty Mites, and the Termites. And all, they're, they're all in there. Those are Canaanites. They stem from Ham. There's also other people groups, we'll talk about this more, that stem from Ham. But at point here is the origin of the unrighteousness of the Canaanites. That is key here. We see in Genesis 10, verses 15 and 18, Ham's son Canaan will give birth to all the people who will be inhabiting the promised land before the Israelites conquer it. Just scan over to Genesis 10, verses 15 and 18. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. We see one of Ham's son, one of his sons is Canaan, and out of 
Canaan, we see all the people that will be in the promised land that Israel is called to conquer. And we see that they conquer them incompletely as you go through Joshua. And they continue to be a snag of idolatry, sexual immorality, unfaithfulness to God's people. This is the origin of the Canaanites' unrighteousness. The historical context is key here. As you study the Bible and try to make sense of it and interpret it rightly, you've got to understand the original audience. Who is Moses, who's the author of the first five books of the, the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Moses is the author. Who is his primary audience? Moses' primary audience are those Israelites poised to take possession of the promised land as they sit on the, the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, about to go in and take the promised land. That's Moses' primary audience. He is instructing those people in preparation to take the promised land. Here's how we know this. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying to them, Moses is coaching them right before they go across the Jordan into the promised land, saying to them, the Lord our God said to us at Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain, turn and take your journey and go into the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites. And Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates, see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and their offspring after them this land. Genesis 9, 18 through 29 is assuming knowledge of the Canaanites and particularly the unfaithfulness, the wickedness of the Canaanites and here in this present passage, we see the root, the root of their unrighteousness and their immorality, their unfaithfulness. That's the purpose of this passage. It's showing us the root of the unrighteousness of the Canaanites. So that's just a little bit of a, back work, a background, a setup work for this passage. Now let's unpack the progression that we see in the passage. The first progression is the acts of sin. We see these these acts in verses 20 through 22. We find this sobering picture of sin and failure, don't we? First by Noah, and then more egregiously in Noah's son, Ham. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Here, the righteous Blameless Noah, the one who walked with God, Genesis 6, verse 9, the one who walked with God in faith and obedience as he built the ark and obeyed God, has a lapse in judgment, doesn't he? Noah falls into sin. Noah is unfaithful here in this passage, and it's a sin of overconsumption. There's no further moral comment on Noah's sin. Notice the, the author moves us quickly from Noah's sin to Ham's sin and highlights, spotlights it more. But the reality is Noah drinks to excess. He loses self-restraint and therefore his inhibitions. And he lays naked, exposed, foolishly, embarrassing himself in his tent. Friend, and there's a warning here. Though we may walk with the Lord, 
in faith and obedience, you are never far from falling. The next bad decision is just right around the corner. Be sober-minded. Though you may trust and obey one day, the next temptation is around the corner. Live sober lives. Rely on the Lord for power, for obedience. And alcohol overconsumption is an all-too-often means of failure, isn't it, in our culture? I have reflected on this passage, and I've shared it with many over the years. If you want to just kind of hear God's heart about the, the sin of drunkenness, turn to Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Just hear, hear what the sage says in Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of the eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. The Bible says that drinking is okay, drunkenness is the sin. Okay, just, just so we're clear on that. Drinking is not a sin, drunkenness is a sin. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, that is strong drink, that is hard alcohol. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down so smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder, that's a poisonous snake. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. You'll lose your inhibitions, in other words. You'll lose self-restraint. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who goes up onto the top of the mast of the boat and says, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. The proverbial beer muscles is what you see here. I am invincible. They struck me, but I didn't feel it. That, that's what it does. Foolishness. When we're given over to drunkenness. When shall I awake? Verse 35, I must have another drink. Just reflect on that. Perhaps that's your battle. We want to be a help and a support to you. God's word sheds good light on it. There's accountability in the local body. It is a common area of failure and fallenness. Let God's word guide you and warn you against this sin that Noah fell into in this passage. No further moral comment on Noah's sin. The author takes us quickly to Ham's sin, which is next, verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Very terse, as Hebrew narrative often is, kind of clips along very fast, without a ton of detail. What is going on here? What has Ham done? It's something egregious, isn't it? His brothers know there's something vile that has happened here. They know something very wrong has happened here. What did Ham do to his father? Well, the answer is we're not entirely sure. Lots of speculation here. Lots of reading between the lines. We need to be very careful. Was it a pure act of voyeurism? You know, like the peeping Tom, he's just kind of taking delight and looking at his father's nakedness. Yeah, but there's more than that here. Some have argued that there's some kind of sexual violation going here. Ham has done something terribly inappropriate to his father. The text doesn't seem to lean this way, though. What is clear is 
there's a deeply dishonorable act that has happened here. Noah has been shamed. I mean, he brought shame onto himself by his drunkenness, but then Ham furthered the shame by some kind of exploitative, inappropriate, shameful, dishonoring act. What is very clear is that there's something deeply dishonoring that has happened here. And a little understanding of non-Western culture, honor-shame culture, helps us. We live in a Western culture, and this is a little bit removed. Some of us in this room are you know, from more non-Western culture, and the honor-shame reality is a prominent one. Honoring your elders, blessing them, is of utmost importance. And the thought of bringing shame to your family, particularly your parents, is woeful. That's the kind of culture that we see here in Noah's day. This familial call to honor elders and the devastation of shaming them. That sort of heightens, gives us a little context. It heightens what Ham has done, although we don't know entirely sure what he has done. Something has gone wrong in Ham's relationship with his father. He's dishonored his father. Young friends... There is blessing when you honor your mother and your father. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Honor your father and your mother. And when you're a young person, like many of you are, what that means is to obey them. And your obedience of mom and dad is a means of you obeying God. Because your parents are what we call God's proxy. That's a weird word. God's proxy in your home. That means God's representative. His closest person, closest representative in your home is your parents. Like, so God is in your home through your parents. And your obedience of your parents is ultimately your obedience to the Lord God. Your disobedience to your parents is ultimately disobedience to the Lord God. That's what's at stake. That's why it's so important. Honor your father and mother. And when they get older, what does that mean? And not necessarily obeying them in, in the sort of child sense, but to honor them means to take care of them. To provide for them in their old age. To Honor them in their gray-headed, gray-haired years. Honor them, bless them, protect them, provide for them. In so doing, your lives will go well, the scripture says. Honor your parents as young people, as middle-aged people, as older adults. Honor them. Additionally... It seems that Ham, in looking on his father's nakedness, has potentially tried to usurp the inheritance, usurp his father's possessions. Well, why do I say this? Because elsewhere in Genesis, we see this phrase, looking upon the nakedness of. And it happens in Genesis chapter 42, when... Joseph accuses his brothers. Joseph's in Egypt, and he accuses his brothers who've come down for food, for grain. They're starving. There's a famine. Joseph, knowing it's their brothers, he plays a little bit of hardball. He says, you've come down here to look upon the nakedness of the land. What does he mean by that? You've come down here to exploit and ultimately to take of the blessing and the provision, the produce of the land. So there's something of exploiting property and possessions here that likely is at play. So not only did, did Ham kind of look and make a mockery of his father who's laying in a drunken mess, he likely did something to usurp his father's estate and try to gather the inheritance, whatever that was, monetarily, 
before it was time, and inappropriately so. Not only does that Genesis 42 verse 9 passage lead us in that direction, it also, the text itself leads us in that direction in the punishment that Ham ultimately was given. There's dispossession in the punishment, isn't there? Shem and Japheth have blessing, have enlarged territories, have possessions, but Ham's son Canaan is confined to servitude. He's dispossessed of material possession. So the punishment fits the crime in scripture. So likely he tried to usurp early the inheritance and then he actually lost his inheritance in the end. The punishment fits the crime. So there's likely him looking on the nakedness involves him kind of exploiting or usurping his father's possessions inappropriately beforehand. Either way, Ham's sin is deeply dishonorable. He invites his brothers into the mockery, doesn't it? He invites his brothers into the sin, but notice their faithful response. They want no parts of this. They refuse to follow suit. So Noah and Ham's sin gives way to Shem and Japheth's act of grace. Acts of sin then give way to an act of grace in verse 23. Notice the very different actions that we see here of Shem and Japheth in verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders, and they walked backwards into the room, covering the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. What do you notice about the actions of Japheth and Shem? They know something very wrong has happened, and they do all they can not to participate in it. They put a cloak on their shoulders, across their shoulders, and they walk backwards into the room where their drunken father is laying naked. They walk back into the room, and twice in the passage it says backward, backward, just so that you know they're not looking forward. They're looking backward, and then they drop the gown, they drop the blanket over their father who's, again, on the floor naked. They do everything they can not to repeat Ham's sin. Faithfulness graciousness. They seek to honor their father where Ham sought to dishonor their father. Shem and Japheth act like God in this passage. What do I mean by that? They seek to cover the sin and shame of their father, just like God sought to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 by sacrificing the animals and putting skins on them. They act like God in this passage. They're walking in godliness, God's character. That's what they're doing. Ham acted like the serpent, like Satan, by exploiting and exposing nakedness. That's exactly what the serpent did in tempting Adam and Eve. Now their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. You see, Shem and Japheth are walking in the footsteps of the Lord God. Ham's walking in Satan's shoes. Isn't it good news that God covers our sin and shame? This is what he does. Shem and Japheth give grace. They honor their father despite his foolishness and his sin. They seek to honor and bless and give grace to. And in the same way, God, despite the foolishness of our sin, gives us grace and seeks to cover us. He's a good God who covers your sin. Friend, you're here. I don't know what is going on in your life. But I know that we all equally have sin and shame, things that we don't want to tell anybody about. I'm here to tell you that 
God will cover your sin and your shame by his grace. And he's done something to, do, to provide that covering. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses and covers us, forgives us. That's the heart of God, to cover sin and shame. Satan tries to continue to expose and bring added guilt, just like Ham did. God gives you grace despite the foolishness of your sin and your shame. Acts of sin followed by an act of grace followed by the consequences that result. Let's look together at verses 24 through 27. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, an important question here that you might be wondering, why is Canaan's son, why is Ham's son cursed for Ham's sin? Canaan receives the curse here. Ham's sin and the resulting consequence is appropriated to his son. For Ham's breach of family honor, his own family would suffer. One branch in his lineage, one of his sons, Canaan, not all of his sons are confined to servitude. One, one son, Canaan, would be confined to servitude. The punishment fits the crime. Ham breached family honor, and as a result, Ham's family, part of his family, would be dishonored and would face suffering. We're not clear on all the details here. But as I allude back to the historical context, what Moses is seeking to do is show the roots of the Canaanites' unrighteousness. Like father, like son, Ham's unrighteousness would ultimately be Canaan's unrighteousness. Canaan would walk in the ways of Ham. Ham's immorality foreshadows, anticipates the immorality of the Canaanites, which is on full display throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We see the consequences here. Canaan, confined to servitude, loses his inheritance, sort of a vagabond serving his other brothers, Shem and Japheth. Shem and Japheth have spiritual blessing and material blessing. Notice what is said of Shem, the Lord is his God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Evidently walking with the Lord. Shem's line is the line of promise, the line which Abraham and the people of God and the Israelites will ultimately stem from. And Japheth receives this enlarged territory, so there's this material blessing as well. Again, the way of sin leads to loss. The way of grace, faithfulness, leads to blessing. I want to make an important note here. There's a sad reality about this passage. And that is this passage has been used throughout the years to justify institutional slavery the confining of African people to servitude and slavery. You can go back and look at manuscripts 
and see how this very passage was used to justify institutional slavery because it's the curse of Ham. We see in Genesis chapter 10, verse 6, other sons of Ham who don't bear the curse, their sons are Cush and Egypt. These are African people. These are dark-skinned people. But notice the curse is to Canaan. The curse isn't to Cush and Egypt, the dark-skinned people of Africa. The, the curse actually goes to Canaan in the promised land. That is modern-day Israel, Lebanon, Syria. So it's in, used entirely wrong to say that Ham's, all of Ham's descendants, including the African people, were confined to servitude. It's, a, it's an abuse of the text. Why do I bring this up? Because, friends, we have to be ever so careful how we handle God's word. God's word has been used in inappropriate and abusive, harmful ways over the years. We have to be ever so careful. Life and death, friends, hinge on the right interpretation of God's word. We've got to be ever so careful. The dark-skinned people of, of Cush and Put and Egypt, African people, were not confined to servitude. It's Canaan. Canaan, the, Israel, the people who occupied the promised land, those are the ones. Be ever so careful how you use God's word. Do all you can to seek to interpret it rightly on your knees, pleading for more light, Lord, more light. Help us to understand this. People's lives are at stake. We also see this wonderful picture of the inclusion of the Gentiles in this passage. The inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. Look with me at verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth, that is his, his territory, and let him, Japheth, dwell in the tents of Shem. Shem would be the line of promise. Shem would be the line through which Abraham would come, the people of God, the Israelites. That's the line of promise. The Messiah is ultimately coming through that line. But notice Japheth, not the line of promise, Japheth represents Gentiles. Japheth gets a place in the tent of Shem. Japheth finds unity and fellowship with Shem. It's a picture of relational harmony, communion, fellowship, and unity. It's a beautiful picture of different people groups coming together because of grace. Their shared act of grace. This foreshadows the union and fellowship of Jew and Gentile under the tent and grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul speaks of this, this mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and members of the same body. They're in the same tent as the Jews, just like Japheth is in the same tent as Shem, partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Gosh, embedded in the early pages of, of the Bible, we see the inclusion of the Gentiles. God is a missionary God. Throughout the Old Testament, certainly spilling into the New, we see him have a heart for all people groups. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be included in the saving plan. There's a little snippet, a little sneak preview of it here as Japheth occupies the tents of Shem. You could title this passage, The Fall 2.0. The Fall 2.0. Let me walk you through the parallels between Adam and Noah. Adam was fall 1.0, Noah's fall 2.0. Let me just walk you through some of these parallels. 
Both Adam and Noah are heads of humanity at creation and recreation, respectively. So Adam was the, the leader, the, the, the head of humanity in God's original creation. Noah, the head of humanity after recreation and the watery chaos, the watery flood. Both Adam and Noah serve as fathers of the human race. Adam at the dawn of creation and Noah at recreation after the flood. Both Adam and Noah are given the creation blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have authority over it. This creation blessing and mandate. Adam in Genesis 1.28, Noah in Genesis 9.1. Both Adam and Noah walk with God. Adam in the Garden of Eden with his wife. Noah figuratively through his faith and obedience in building the ark. Noah walked with God instead of both of them. Both worked the soil. Both cultivated plant life. Adam in the Garden of Eden working and keeping the garden. Noah planting this vineyard. Both were men of the soil. Both fell into sin, and not just sin, but sin of consumption. Adam sinned by taking of the fruit which he ought not have. Noah sinned by consumption, overconsumption of the fruit of the vine. And finally, a beautiful picture of hope. Both Adam and Noah's sin and shame is covered by an act of grace. Adam's in Genesis 3, as the Lord slays animals to cover them with animal sins, Noah, by the faithful acts of grace of his sons who walk backwards and throw the blanket over their father, both are covered. It's unmistakable parallel between Adam and Noah. This is a fall 2.0, and it leans us forward, eagerly anticipating another Adam. An Adam who wouldn't fall. An Adam who wouldn't fail. Who is that other Adam coming in this lineage? The lineage of Shem. Oh, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who comes, who would not fail, but who would prevail. Romans chapter 5 verse 18. As Adam's trespass led to the condemnation for all people, so does Jesus Christ's act of righteousness lead to the justification in life for all people who will trust in Christ. This passage, it's sobering because it's another fall. We've seen it with Adam. We see it now with Noah. It's just creating in us a longing. Who will be the Adam? Who will be the one who won't fall? It's Jesus Christ. Praise God for his provision of Jesus. He's the greatest hope that we have in the midst of sin and failure. When all is lost, when darkness comes, Jesus Christ is our greatest hope. He's, in fact, our only hope. Our sin is dealt with. Our shame is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Trust in him today, friends. He's your only hope. You will run after all these dead-end places. They'll never cover your sin and shame. They'll only exacerbate it. Only Christ's blood can cover your sin and give you hope and covering. And today, we have an opportunity to celebrate that. Our means of covering is through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We come to the Lord's table to remember that shed blood, his broken body. Remember the truth that by faith in Christ's death and resurrection, we have right relationship with God and with one another. Communing relationship with God and communing relationship with one another. So I want to invite you to participate with us. If you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to partake. In a, in a moment, I will lead us through that time. If you've not had a chance to grab the communion cup, there's some more in the lobby. After I pray, you can go and get those. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, friend, we're so glad that you're here. You're in the right place so that you can hear about Christ and come to believe in him. But for right now, please abstain from taking the Lord's Supper. You're not yet ready yet. But before long, Lord willing, you will be. 
think about what the bread and the cup represent. Jesus Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you, that you might come to know him personally. I'll pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this chance we have to gather, to worship, to read your word, to be challenged, encouraged, equipped by it. Lord, would you teach us to trust and obey you? Teach us, Lord, to cry out to you in the midst of sin and failure and shame. There's no other way that we can be covered except the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to trust and believe in the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. Guide us now as we celebrate together the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.